Hello everyone, I am officially in the spooky season spirit. I can't wait to share this week's collection of stories with you. Let us begin, and drift together further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a park ranger, and in order to survive, I had to make my own rules. Written by Dramantis. I've been a park ranger for a little under six months, and I almost quit in my first week. You see, I've always preferred being in nature as opposed to the city, mostly because I enjoy the quiet and when I was a kid, watching Crocodile Hunter and other nature conservation shows and stories. I love animals. The things I've seen and had to deal with though, I'm not sure they classify as even real. The first night I showed up to work, I arrived 10 minutes early. Man, little did I know at the time, it was the worst mistake I had made on my first day. It's a small park and it didn't need more than two rangers on site at a time, but most of the time we just had one. I was greeted by the ranger from the shift before on arrival, and given the rundown of what I would be doing that day, mostly just hanging out in the information building and monitoring trail and sight cameras. Once every couple of hours in the 10 hour shift, I would patrol one of the four quadrants the park was divided into. What no one told me my first day is that the night shift park ranger either goes missing or dies within the first week. I found this out later that night, and not from the first shift ranger. After the first two hours of monitoring cameras and helping the two people that stopped by the information center, I set out on patrol, choosing the quadrant I went to at random. In the end, I decided on the east quadrant, one of the more undisturbed areas of the park. I hopped in the sorry excuse for a patrol car, more like a buggy or an ATV than a car, and headed towards the east quadrant. It was a quiet drive for the most part, except for the sounds of crickets and the occasional owl's hoot. But as I got closer to the east quadrant, I noticed these sounds began to die away, slowly but surely, until all was silent. I preferred the quiet anyway, so these sounds that dying away were less alarming than it was calming for me. I had a smile on my face as I began making my round. I expected not to find many, if any, campers in this section of the park. But about halfway through my patrol, I came across a bald man stumbling down the trail. I stopped the car a little ways away from him, weak headlights shining directly at him. I pulled out my flashlight and hopped out of the car, approaching the hobbling man. Excuse me, sir. Are you alright? You don't look that well. He had stopped, dead in his tracks when I noticed him, but I hardly took notice of it as I approached. The only thing that struck me as strange was the fact that the man had his head tilted down, so a shadow cast across his face. He spoke with a speech impediment. He spoke slowly and deeply, and it sounded like his mouth was stuffed with bread. Ranger. He hadn't moved a muscle, and I never saw his mouth open as he spoke. It struck me as odd, and I stopped with a little bit of distance between us. The injured-looking man hadn't moved at all since I had spotted him. 
You must be the new ranger. I noticed a slight amount of movement in the shadows splayed across his face, and a small amount of noise, like something being sharpened or sliced. I found it out that this man was able to identify me as the new ranger, but maybe he was just a regular in the park. I am. Do you need help? It's been so long since I've had a meal. Ranger, help me. I had brought along a few protein bars with me, one in a snack for the shift, and I had brought some along as I didn't know how long the patrol would take. May I come with me back over to my patrol car? Have you been lost out here, sir? Do you need any assistance other than food? The strange man made no move to come closer. He just stood where I had first found him, stone still. I am only hungry, ranger. I stared at him for a few more moments, before turning to walk to my patrol car. Then come with me, I'll give you some protein bars and after that, I think you should still come with me. I trailed off because at that moment, I felt and heard something behind me, breathing down my neck and breathing heavily. From behind I heard, Last mistake you'll ever make, Ranger. Now I can eat. I heard the snapping of bones from behind me as the strange man slammed into my back, winding me and knocking me to the ground. I tried to catch my breath and scramble up and towards my patrol car. But with surprising speed after such a forceful blow, the man put all of his weight onto my back. I heard a guttural sound coming from the man behind me and felt a slimy smattering of something wet drip onto and soak through my uniform. I had begun to recover from the blood on my back and I noticed I still clutched the flashlight in my hand. I took in a sharp, quick breath, bracing myself as I twisted and swung wildly connecting with the butt of the flashlight to something as his foot slid off my back. I took a look up at the man and noticed the most horrifying image I had ever seen up to that point. His mouth hung open in the most inhuman way and rows of long needle and saw-like teeth, the number of which was impossibly large. Drool dripped from his mouth and the sickly sweet smell of rotting flesh and death assaulted my nostrils. The man was posed like a tiger ready to pounce as I stared at him, but the longer I stared in horror at this monstrosity, the more I noticed that he wouldn't move a muscle. The creature in front of me snarled as I began backing up slowly, scooting my way across the ground towards the patrol car. You got lucky this time, ranger. I'll get ya next time you come to this place. Just like the last. He made a noise and an unearthly noise like stones grinding together mixed with the call of a wild animal. Something about his face gave me the impression he was amused, like he was laughing. I got to my feet and kept eye contact as I opened the door to my patrol car and climbed inside, trembling and struggling to get the key into the ignition as I stared at the creature. I noticed he still didn't move if I blinked, so luckily I didn't have to strain my eyes, 
but multitasking and spatial awareness were already not my strong suit. I struggled for another five minutes before starting the patrol vehicle back up, and I slammed my foot on the gas pedal, swiping around the man and trying to make my way around the circuit to get back to the information center. The haunting laughter of the creature followed me as it echoed throughout the forest. I feel like he let me go on purpose. It's like he got bored of easy kills and now he wants to hunt me. I hastily completed the circuit and made it back to the information center. This thing had told me that he had taken out other rangers in the past, but there's no mention at all of anything like him in the park. So as soon as I made it back to the information center, I began to write out a list. A reminder for myself for the next ranger after I quit this place, because at the time, I convinced myself I was going to be able to quit. I took a sheet of printer paper from the machine and began writing. Rules to survive the night shift. Rule number one. Never break line of sight with the bald man with the strange lisp. If you do, pray he lets you go. The prison I work in holds no prisoners. It's pretty weird, yeah. The only time I get to see them is when they arrive. The guards have to stand in a line facing the new inmates as they head into the prison, never to be seen again. I don't know what's weirder, the fact that our prison doesn't even have a name, or that we never see the inmates at all. Not to mention, some of their sentences are pretty harsh considering what they're being convicted for. All the prisoners are on death row, however. We're not in charge of giving the executions. That's the job for the warden himself to deal with. When you hear death row, you usually think the worst of the worst. But these prisoners' bad deeds range from gambling, intoxication, oversmoking, and sometimes for some reason, infidelity. That's right. Some prisoners are put on death row here for that. Every part of the prison is completely divided via airlock doors that need administration's approval for entry and exit. So, if you want to make it to these cell blocks, you need to radio in with them. And yes, there are airlocks for the men's and women's bathroom each. All prison personnel are not allowed to be in these same parts as the prisoners. So, if they're in the cafeteria, we can't be in there or in the kitchen either. If you fail to finish your duties, let's say cleaning in time, you're getting a reduced pay for that week. And if you ever wind up in these same areas as the inmates, you're considered dead and a letter is sent home to your loved ones. It's really backwards if you think about it. The inmates who are on death row practically have ample opportunity to escape at literally any point they want to. I mean, it's not like the guards can do anything about it, because we literally can't. But our job isn't to think about that. Our job is to make sure nobody gets in or out. I don't know. And personally, I don't want to know. I've seen the stories in this place. How people's curiosities and attitudes lead them towards a life of torment and pain. I've seen and heard all the warning signs to know that not some, but a lot of things in life are better left unknown rather than anything else. So I never questioned it. Never gave it one thought in my mind in my 15 years of serving this prison. And never, ever 
Did the unanswered question ever consume me to the point where I just had to know? Unfortunately, I couldn't say these same things for one of my work friends. His name was Sebastian. He was in his mid-twenties, was an idiot, and therefore was always curious. He told me that his dream job was to work for NASA or SpaceX, or any company studying space. He always loved learning and loved talking about education. That and the weird prison that we worked in. I think it was about two years of working here that he completely broke and decided to do some investigating on his own. Reception, administration, the warden. Not even some guards were willing to say anything to him. And eventually, all of his pent-up curiosity was finally answered to him. With his death. It was 11pm, the time when all the prisoners were asleep. I was on the night shift, making sure everybody besides some guards and janitors were off the site. Sebastian wasn't supposed to be on site today, so I was pretty surprised to see him there. He was very distinguishable from the other guards. What with his baby blue eyes and his almost perfectly white hair, not to mention his under-average height, I asked him, what the heck are you doing here? Sebastian stammered. Um, just doing some overtime. I knew that it was BS and he did too. We didn't do overtime at this nameless prison. He knew that I knew it was baloney. And so I told him, Follow me outside. Come on. And he complied. We walked together from the indoor courtyard to the indoor gym, to the indoor administration where he was given a stern talking to by the head of security, and eventually to the outdoor area, where that son of a gun tased me until I blacked out cold. I was awoken by the head of security, where he told me that he had climbed into the vents, what with his small stature and all. My job was to track him, and he was moving fast and I was the only one who knew him really well. The administration gives me permission to check every single part of the prison, I only asked to check these cell blocks. They told me that I was a goner because that was where all the prisoners were being held. I told them that Sebastian would be there, or I would quit tomorrow morning, and they let me through. I ran as fast as I could, from the indoor administration to the indoor gym, through the indoor courtyard to where I was stopped by an airlock. I radioed in with the reception. What the heck? I thought I just said to let me through to the cell blocks. The only reply I got was static. I told them otherwise. Said a deep voice behind my back. I turned around and saw a man, wearing a two-piece business suit, and pure Damascus 14 karat gold sunglasses. He had no face, no ears, no nose, no hair, and his skin was pure gray. He was the warden. I, I need to be let in here. He's going to be considered dead, but I can still save him. He ignored my statement, walked over to me, and said, Do you ever wonder what we keep in here? What kind of sick and twisted things are stored in this prison with no name? What kind of people come in here with deeds so vile that you just want to take them out yourself? Just as he had finished talking, I heard yelling from the other side of the airlock, Help me! Uh, open the door! 
I looked through the window to the airlock to see a faint silhouette of a man. The warning continued on. Well, we don't house inmates in this prison. As the screaming man came running at full speed towards the airlock door, I saw a horrific sight. We house wolves. The screaming man was Sebastian. Half of his face was gone. I could see his skull, his left eye was missing, and his other eye was crying red. He was begging to open the door, all while me and the warden stood there watching him. One man stood in defeat, the other showed no emotion, not with his stance, not with his head, not with anything. These wolves, the warden continued, are the addictions of man. Smoking, gambling, killing, yes, even S.E.X. They're all here as the beings they really are, wolves slowly chowing down on their prey. Suddenly, a pair of eight footsteps came even closer and Sebastian slowly stopped yelling and started to just cry. As he realized that his only hope had abandoned him, symbolized through the warden walking away from the airlock. The last thing he said to me was, When you're done here, you're fired. I ignored him and watched, as Sebastian stopped crying and began screaming. Not for help, not for me or for the warden, but in agony and pain. He was eaten alive from the bottom up, by the wolves of curiosity. My grandfather served in the SS. He left me something odd after he passed away. Written by Emperor D-Man. Okay, to preface, it's a well-known family secret that my maternal grandfather, Gramps, served in the Waffen SS during the Second World War. He was wounded in action and still has his wound badge in silver for his lost two fingers. In the 50s after the war, he moved to America. He worked in Pontiac at a General Motors engine plant for 40 years. When he retired in 2001, he was a true American. He owned a nice house in the suburbs that he gave to my mother as a wedding gift. He owns a big property up north where he hunts and fishes and he drives a beautiful old 66 Corvette. He passed away last week from acute lung cancer at the ripe old age of 97. He never smoked a day in his life, but they say a lot of veterans breathe in a lot of bad stuff during their service, so I guess it wasn't too surprising. I was always pretty close to Gramps, so I got a little bit of a surprise in as well. He left his daughter and only child almost everything that he owned. However, his oldest grandson, me, got the key to a safety deposit box that no one knew anything about. An old man with a limp whom I had never met before introduced himself at the funeral after the service and the will reading. Our conversation went something like this. You must be Lewis's grandson, David, am I correct? Well, yes, who might you be? My name is Jonas. I knew your grandfather for quite a long time. He had said with a smile. He looked to be maybe 60, and he had a thick accent. I couldn't place it, but it might have been German. Well, it's nice to meet you, Jonas. 
What was it that you wanted to speak to me about? His entire demeanor changed from one of kindness to a simple, cold determination. I'll be blunt. I know what you're going to find in that safety deposit box, and I don't think you want to be wrapped up in it. He reached into a pocket and withdrew a thick envelope. I believe this is more than enough fair compensation. Five thousand and all I want is that key. What it seemed like a genuine concern from the older man at first had rapidly turned into something sinister. His offer had seemed more than a little forceful, and despite his strangely small stature, I found myself more than a little intimidated. I'm sorry, but my grandfather wanted me to have whatever's in that box. Five thousand just isn't worth disrespecting my grandfather's final wishes. His expression darkened considerably then. I'm afraid you're making a mistake, son. A grave mistake. And with that, he had turned and left the building. The whole event had seemed almost like a movie scene more than real life. I knew my next step was to investigate the safety deposit box. Maybe Jonas had been a friend's son from back in Germany. Or maybe he had been some kind of guy trying to get my grandfather's gold or something. I didn't know the whole story at the time anyways. The bank let me in with no issues and when I entered the vault, I discovered the key opened a tiny little box numbered S32. As I opened the box, a hiss escaped from the apparently sealed container. The rush of air smelled like old paper and a hint of rust. Inside the box was an original copy of the Mein Kampf. I'm not sure what I expected, but it certainly wasn't this. As I lifted the book out, I found it to be in excellent condition, no worse than a paperback at the public library. I flipped the cover open and found a small note written in what I assumed to be German on the back of a little photograph. It was extremely faded, but it depicted a man in a black uniform leaning up against what looked like a small artillery cannon. Maybe Gramps, but it's hard to tell. I stood, scrutinizing the photo for long enough that the security guard at the door eventually asked if I was alright. That snapped me back into reality. I turned to leave and as I was walking past the guard and out the door, I heard a little clatter. I turned around to see the guard picking up the safety deposit box key. I checked my pocket and found my key was still there. So the guard offered me the key. This fell out of your book, he said flatly. I took the key and read the tag. S33. On a whim, I walked back to the wall of small deposit boxes and I opened up S33. Another rush of air, another faint scent of old paper and metal. Inside this box, however, I found a small leather-wrapped journal and a little cardboard sleeve with what looked at first glance to be a booklet inside. As I inspected the journal, I felt a hand grab my shoulder firmly and I spun around. Sir, your 15 minutes are up. It's the next guest's turn in the vault. You can take anything or leave anything that will fit in the boxes, but we will need you to move along now. After briefly catching my breath, I tucked the books into my satchel bag and locked the two boxes, and then I walked out after the guard. 
I did my best to translate the little note when I got home. It turns out that it wasn't written in German at all, but rather Finnish. The note read, Louis, SS Pazenjager Battalion 6, Nord, and redacted, Winter 1942. I flipped through the entirety of the book, and there were a lot of writing in the margins. I'll probably translate that for you all later if anything proves interesting. In the back, I did find a small slip of paper. It had some sort of rune shape on it. It looked like three lines crossing each other like a snowflake. I wasn't sure what it meant, but it somehow felt sinister. Though that might have been the terrible book I was holding. The small cardboard sheath held a tiny booklet. On the front, the little booklet said, Soul Booch, with a pair of SS runes above the word. Inside was a picture of my grandfather, along with the identification information, like his name and blood type. The last book, the leather-bound journal, was what drew my attention enough to translate first. I couldn't read the German, but after translating, it seemed to start out innocuous enough. The book started out with leaving home. Apparently, he wasn't tall enough to serve in the army, so he joined the SS instead. His unit was sent with the army to invade Norway, and he almost killed a British soldier there. According to his journal, his shot missed only because he was shivering from the cold. But I would like to think that maybe he didn't want to really kill anyone. After Norway, his unit was sent up to Finland, where his unit of tank hunters were tasked with stopping Soviet tank attacks across the river. That summer in 1941, was supposedly a beautiful time to be in Norway. Above the Arctic Circle, it never truly got warm, but the forests and the fjords were described as beautiful. Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of Russia, was more or less just a slow walk for him. The anti-tank guns were slow to move and he didn't see much fighting at all. When the fall rains came, and the guns couldn't be moved thanks to the mud, his unit was put up in a defensive line in the forest around the Russian town of Zapolowarny. Daily life in his unit consisted of lots of sitting around in the growing cold, cleaning and recleaning the anti-tank guns, and patrolling the forest around the river that they were stationed by. When it gets interesting is in November of 1941. Now I can't read the German to translate it myself, but I'll try to make the Google Translate as readable as possible, while keeping it as faithful to the original as I can. November 3rd, 1941. Freezing today. The wind was broken by the trees, but we can hear it overhead. Our sentries brought in a group of Finns escorted by some finished ski troops. They were just normal people. They said they lived in a village that was destroyed deep in the forest. The people described a fierce attack in the night by the Soviets. What these ski troops described sounded like an artillery strike, but we have no records of such a strike. It trickled down through the ranks that there might be such Soviet self-propelled guns in the area, so they decided to send us, the tank hunters, to investigate. Lieutenant Zimmerman decided to send four gun crews in numbers of four through seven, plus the Finnish ski troops to act as translators and maybe do some scouting for us. 
There's not much of a dawn anymore, as the sun doesn't rise as much in the sky. Just somewhat lightens, but we leave in the morning. November 4th, 1941. Bitterly cold again. Moving barely keeps you warm. Exposed skin turns red, and then white in only minutes. And then it loses feeling. The horses are bundled as tightly as we are, but I fear they don't have long. Something about the forest just scares the horses. The Finnish troops say that there are wolves around. They spotted tracks and found a carcass of a caribou. I've known horses my whole life, and the wolves of Silesia never scared horses so badly. And because I've always liked studying language, I've spent some time with the Finns to try to learn. As we sat around a fire talking, I noticed one of these smaller men looked particularly young. I asked the Finns commander, only to find that the man in question was in fact a boy of 13. His entire family had been killed during the Winter War of 1939-1940. to He had been hunting in this very forest at the time. The unit commander had only accepted the boy after he had stalked the ski troop over 100 kilometers through the treacherous forest and heard the boy's story. He wouldn't allow the boy to see combat after all. He was just a child. But the boy was allowed to follow along and hunt with the man. I tried to speak to the boy before I left, but he wouldn't even acknowledge that I was there. Strange folk, the Finns. November 7th, 1941. It was bitterly cold again this morning. The sentries seemed to have shirked their duty as they are nowhere to be seen. We camped in two places to avoid an artillery strike destroying all four guns, but there was no smoke coming from the other camp, which is strange. After investigating, we found the other camp, a mess. Men hacked apart in their tents, with various parts simply missing without a trace. The tents themselves were slashed and burned. We never heard so much as a shout, let alone a gunshot. The gun's numbers of four and five were untouched, but their horses were in the same shape as the men. Lieutenant Zimmerman was found, or more correctly, what was left of the lieutenant. Most of his legs were gone, as though they had been torn off by something with teeth. Perhaps the strangest part, though, was that in one hand he held his bayonet, and in the other a scrap of fabric. Not Soviet uniform, but rather the rough spun fabric of the Finnish ski troops' cloaks. A quick inspection found that none of our seven Finns were missing part of their cloak, so they were all cleared but resentment was quick to form. I may be the only one to notice, but the boy of 13 was nowhere to be found. It's worth noting that a few pages were torn out here, and unfortunately, it looks like those entries are lost forever. November 10th, 1941. At least Command was right. We found these Soviet self-propelled guns, but they were just like our own camp. The men were hacked apart and their tents burned. The vehicles were in perfect working order though, just some snow on top of them. The whole site looked to be maybe three days old. Plausible enough that it might have been attacked around the same time as our past campsite was. Though it must have been a different group of Finns, if indeed it was Finns that did it. We got two of the four things running. We all have dozens of gallons of petrol on board. 
so we think we can drive them around a hundred kilometers, assuming no breakdowns. It'll be nice not to have to walk for a while. The second lieutenant decided to put me in charge of one of these Soviet tractors. We hitched up our gun at number six and got my crew on board. We could only fit three inside the warm casemate. A driver, a gun loader, and a commander. So three will have to ride on the outside, at least for now. The Finns flatly refused to ride and decided to ski alongside. The boy still hasn't returned and I'm starting to worry about it. The Finnish commander simply wouldn't acknowledge that the boy was ever there. Though some of the other troopers would give me sideways glances when I asked. This entire situation seems very strange. More so even than the brutal attacks. November 11th, 1941. The boy returned this morning. He was just there, sitting around the Finnish campfire. No one else seemed to notice that there was anything strange about his presence. Nor did they notice the terror in his cloak. We found the village today. Another group of torn apart Soviets. This group was small and their gear was ragged. Maybe they were survivors of the other group. Maybe they were deserters. I really don't know. What I noticed, though, was that one of them had a knife in their cold, dead hand. They also had another scrap of cloak fabric. I hid this from the others. I don't really know why. Maybe I just wanted to keep my own fear from spreading. Or maybe I knew deep down that there was nothing we could do about it. I caught the boy looking at me from time to time. November 12th, 1941. The other house burned down in the night. The remains of the men are just bones and ash. Even still, we could see these spots where their bones were scarred, as though by axes or another blade. They must have been ripped apart in their sleep. With these second lieutenant dead, I am in charge now. We need to get the heck out of these woods. November 13th, 1941. The paranoia is getting to everyone. And Schmidt broke. He just started waving his rifle at anyone who came near. He refused to get back on board the tractor. And when he started shooting at us, we had no choice. He took four bullets before he went down. I can only pray that my shot was not the one that stopped his heart. We had to press on. It's getting even colder at night. And the sun doesn't rise, of course, but even the faint lights we see... It tells us that the day is gradually getting dimmer. Schmidt was the most veteran among us. He always said that winter in the mountains is the worst thing in the world. I guess he didn't want to spend winter in this place. It's darker again too. The fire barely seems to illuminate beyond itself. Where once the fire threw warmth and light in a five meter ring, it now barely illuminates the man opposite of you. There were 28 of us and 7 fins plus the boy. Now, there are only 6 and 3 fins. The boy is gone again. November 14th, 1941. Only one of the fins returned today. The three went to scout ahead of the vehicle, but only one came back. He was mauled badly. His right arm was gone and he had a deep cut in his chest. As the only one who could speak any Finnish... I tried to translate, but it was almost unintelligible. Our medic wasn't able to save him. In a fit of pain and suffering, all he said was, 
Please, please, Jonas, no. We're being watched now, I'm sure of it. Why he didn't stop at us at the outset of this cursed journey, I might never understand. All I can hope is that he believes the rest of the division will be too much for him to defeat. We will be making our way west as quickly as possible. I don't think we can outrun him. There were more pages torn out here. November 17th, 1941. The banging doesn't end. I don't think he understands that the vehicle is armored, but he won't stop banging. We've had to drive so slowly due to the closed trees that we're barely making walking speed. All of the hatches are shut, and the tractor reeks of three days of crap. But if we open anything to clear the air, he might get in. The banging won't stop. It just won't. Always the banging. November 19th, 1941. We're out of fuel. There's no hope now. The vision splits see nothing but trees all around. We can get the extra fuel off the back of the tractor, and we can move the vehicle without fuel. I think we might have to fight it. November 20th, 1941. I got them. My hand is still bleeding as I write, but the nurse might take my journal from me, so I must write it now. We tried to fight. I don't know what other choice we had. We had rifles, but the boy had claws and teeth. We riddled it with bullets and bayonets, and I even managed to lob a grenade at it. And I think I managed to hurt its leg because it limped into the woods and didn't follow me right away. I paid for that with two fingers off my hand. No one else escaped. I can still feel its eyes watching me. The one who made it away. And the banging, I can still hear it. I can still hear the banging. I jumped and sheepishly grinned. Someone was simply knocking at the door. Unnerving as it is, my grandfather must have written this silly thing to pass the time. There's simply no way a little peasant boy from Finland could have killed 30 men, much less have traced my lineage to find me. What an absurd notion. The bottom of the ocean is unexplored for a reason. Written by Webb Slinger I have been technical diving for the better part of a decade. Something about the ocean and all its unexplored wonder has always drawn me to the deep. An entire uncharted alien world lurks just beneath us, just waiting to reveal its mysteries to those daring enough to take the plunge. I guess you could say that diving is my passion. It has been my entire adult life. Now, I can't even bring myself to go near the deep end of the pool without having a panic attack. It all started when one of my best buddies approached me with the idea to go on a little excursion. Todd had a fairly formidable boat that he had carved out a living with by engaging in, let's just say, less than legal activities. Anyway, some reputable character that Todd helps move cargo into the country had told him about a cave several miles off the coast of his own country. Truth be told, 
No matter how much time I spend on the background of how we found ourselves 100 feet below sea level, I'll still never understand why or how I agreed to such a misguided idea. It hardly matters now though. At 99 feet below sea level, the pressure on your body normally felt by the atmosphere is quadrupled. The sunlight feebly attempts in vain to penetrate the blackness. Darkness rules there, and creatures of the dark are all that inhabit it. I checked my depth and air pressure gauges, and looked up to see Todd hand signaling me to follow him to the mouth of the cave. I flutter kicked silently forward, floating just above the seaweed and silt covered ocean floor. Taking in as much of the world as my low profile, narrow lens mask would let me. When we reached the mouth of the cave, Todd dropped to the floor and clipped his line to a formation near the entrance. This is a very important step in cave diving. That line was our only way back out of the system. I held my light on his hands while he worked, but my gaze drifted back to the mouth of the cave. The darkness was just as oppressive as always, but there was something strange. I couldn't put my finger on it at the time. The ominous black maw was somehow more intense than it should be. And then I heard it. A low pitched roar from out of the deep. A thunderous echo sounded from so far below. It was a whisper by the time that it reached us. That's the strange thing about your hearing when you dive that far down. You don't just hear. You feel. You feel it in your chest. In your bones. The noise echoed through me, and I felt my stomach drop. We hadn't come this far for nothing, though, and we dutifully pressed on. Todd held the line and made entrance first, and I followed behind. My hand trailed along the line as it unfurled. With graceful strokes, we kicked only about 32-40 feet into the system, before my light caught a silver glint out of the backdrop of darkness and neutral-toned rock formations. Todd signaled that he saw it as well, and we stopped. Kicking myself over to it, the narrow beam cast itself on the object. The eerie silence was broken only by the soft, rhythmic beat of our exhales as they bubbled up to the roof of the tunnel. The glint revealed itself to be a scuba tank, half buried in the silt. Many cave divers bring along spare safety rigs. The last thing you want when you're 100 feet down and close by a rock ceiling is to run out of air. But who would leave this behind? We clipped it off to our line, with the intention of taking it back with us when we made the return trip. Delving deeper into the system, we came across our first fork. Todd signaled to me. He was asking which way I thought we should go. 
My light panned back and forth between the two tunnels. It was smothered by the abysmal nothingness, no more than ten feet ahead. The ever-present pressure continued to squeeze me, like a python coiling around its prey. It was oppressive. I felt a slight current brush the cold, dark water across my skin. It came from the left tunnel. I gestured to the left, and we continued our exploration. We were 110 feet deep here. Even as an experienced diver, the pressure became taxing. Several kick paces in, something caught the focused beam of my light. It was unnatural. It stuck out like a sore thumb among the rocky stalagmites within my narrow beam of vision. I gracefully kicked over to it, careful not to stir the silt at the bottom of the cave floor. Once stirred, silt takes a considerable amount of time before settling again, more time than the air tanks afforded us. If I thought my vision was limited before, the silt storm would mean complete and total blindness. Reaching my point of fixation, I settled and focused upon the thing that had caught my eye. Pulling it from its sunken place in the sand, I found it to be the diver's slate. Divers can't communicate verbally underwater, so what can be signaled through commonly recognized hand motions, divers will write on a slate and pass it to one another. Shining my narrow beam onto its surface, I made out the hastily written words. Size, refrigerator, smooth black skin, dolphin-like but some humanoid features, opposable thumbs. Chilled, I passed the slate to Todd, who read it and after glancing worriedly toward me, tucked it away in his gear pouch. We pressed forward. As we neared the end of the tunnel, the walls began narrowing until they pressed against my shoulders. At one point, it became so narrow that I had to remove my tank and pass it through the opening before trying to slither through myself. For a brief moment, I became stuck. The familiar panic set in. I took several slow breaths to calm myself, and then I exhaled every bit of air in my lungs and at last, managed to become just slender enough to barely push myself through. On the other side of this obstacle, the system opened up. We found ourselves on a small ledge that dropped off into a large chamber. Shining my light around the perimeter, I noted the horizontal boundaries. Turning my narrow beam down, Toward what should have been the floor of the chamber, my light was snuffed out by the overwhelming blackness. To this day, I have no idea how impossibly deep it could have stretched. I settled down to the bottom of the ledge to peer over the edge. The moment that my knees touched the sand, I realized my right knee was landing on something hard. Reaching into the sand, 
I grabbed it and pulled it from its burial place. It was a video camera. Clearly a high-end one too. Whoever had made it this far before must have wanted to document their expedition. Fumbling with the buttons, I switched it on and positioned my light on the playback screen so I could see the last recorded video. The video started and I recognized the sight of the obstacle that we had just pressed our way through. The frame reached the end of the ledge that we now found ourselves on and then began panning around the room. It's eerie to watch a video underwater. With no sound, it had all the effect of a silent horror film. The deja vu sense I had seeing the surroundings that I was currently in it didn't put me at ease. The frame then panned down to the bottom of the cavern and back up from the abyss to rest in the figure of a diver positioned next to the cameraman. Clearly, it was the dive buddy of whoever was shooting. The diver in the frame looked toward the camera, when suddenly, a strange dark figure shot across the frame and out of view. At first, the diver appeared just as he was a moment before, and then he clutched his throat. He clasped both hands to his neck as if he was choking, and then wisps of dark red stretched out from around his grip, like malevolent fingers spreading their reach across the dark water. The figure rocketed across the frame again from a new direction and out of sight. The diver's mask and regulator were gone now, and so was a large, haphazardly torn portion of his face. The camera frame shook in obvious shock as the red swirled violently, dying the water in view. The still twitching body floated limply forward until the figure rocketed by again, and it was gone, dragged down into the black. The frame peered over the ledge until it was smacked violently and the screen had turned black. Out of a silent nothingness, a roar exploded into being. Startled, I dropped the camera. To my left, Todd, in a clear, panicked motion, pointed for me to go back the way that we came. Kicking with all of my might, I made it back to the narrow passageway and began the arduous task of shoving myself back through. Barely making it through the obstacle once again, I turned to help Todd. He passed his tank through to me and I grabbed it. He fit his head, then his shoulders through in a panicked hurry. His body filled up the entirety of the passageway and I could only see his head poking out through the rocks. But before he could gain any more ground, his head jerked in a sickening way. Bubbles exploded from his regulator as he screamed out in pain. Red seeped through the opening and began staining the water all around us. Helplessly, 
I tried to tug him through, but as I pulled, I felt something pulling back the other way. Todd's regulator flooded the chamber with purged air bubbles as his screams of pain propelled them violently toward the roof of the tunnel. The regulator dropped from his mouth and his head dropped lifelessly down. Horrified, I realized whatever that godforsaken thing was, it was on the other side. The lifeless corpse of my friend was the only thing barring it from pursuing me. The aquatic roar sounded loudly as more red poured into my side of the obstacle. I realized that this was my chance, my only one. It is with shame, I have to admit, that I left my friend there so that I would have time to make my escape. My heart pounded as I swam with all my might to the mouth of the cave system. Foolishly, I made an emergency ascent to the surface, not even stopping to decompress. It was worth the risk of the bends, just to get the heck out of that freaking water. It's been a month since then. I finally recovered from the bends after spending what felt like forever in a hyperbaric chamber. I can no longer bear the thought of swimming, let alone diving. I can't even explain why. All the proof I had of that wretched thing is buried in that cave with the body of my friend. I couldn't keep this to myself. I barely cling to my sanity as is. I had to tell someone. Somehow. So, I'll post it here. Hopefully this will be a warning to all those seeking the mysteries of the deep. The case that made me give up being a private investigator. Written by... Toucan the Rapper I'm putting this up here because I want to keep it separate from my other case files. You'll see why. For now, just know it didn't feel appropriate keeping it with the endless logs on cheating spouses and tracked down runaway teens. Not level. I almost didn't type up this file at all. I nearly burned it. I would have been more than happy to pretend the following never happened. I changed my mind because I figured that if I had stayed silent, somebody else might accidentally go poking down the rabbit hole. So yeah, my story. What you're about to read took place back in the early 2010s. I did know it when I signed the initial contract with Hannah Boxstead but it was the last case I ever took on as a private investigator. Something about the whole gig didn't feel right after. I don't think you'll blame me for moving on to my current career as a debt collector though. It started out routine enough. I got the call on a Monday morning while I was groaning away a hangover in the steam of from a piping cup of black mud. 
London is a big place and I'm good at finding people in it. My caseload was a never slim, let's put it that way. The phone ringing first thing on a Monday wasn't unusual. The nature of the case is what excited me enough to put it in the top of my schedule. The caller was Hannah Boxstad, 56, from Hackney. The case, her son Ian, namely, what the London Metropolitan Police weren't telling her about how he died. Hannah didn't agree with the MET's verdict that Ian died by his own hand. When she came to my office that afternoon, she brought screenshots of private conversations, screenshots containing her son's plans, dreams, and hopes from the future. The most recent of which was around booking a holiday, written a few hours before his allegedly self-inflicted death. Alone, these would not have led me to suspect I was dealing with anything other than a grieving mother in denial. But then she showed me the photos that she had sneaked of his body when she had gone to identify it. Sure, Ian was covered head to toe in deep cuts, his nose was broken, and his body was covered in dirt like he had been sleeping in a dumpster. It was the body of someone who went through a lot of emotions and hardships in their final moments. I agreed with Hannah Boxstead though. This wasn't the body of someone who showed themselves out of the land of the living. Folk who choose their own ending don't die with screams on their faces. Ian was found about three days after his death in a car park behind a warehouse. There were drugs in his system, and not at the levels that should induce dangerous behavior or overdose. Hannah's research had been thorough, and I had tailed enough junky kids to confirm the chart she showed me didn't show anything more than a 19-year-old kid putting a little extra kick in his weekend. The cuts and negligible levels of party favors in his system are what led the MET to rule self-murder. To Hannah's delight, I disagreed on both fronts. The wounds couldn't have been self-inflicted. There were too many inch-long cuts and hard-to-reach places for Ian to have made them himself. And there were also hundreds of them. He would have passed out long before getting to the two fatal wounds. They were also far too straight, far too precise. Ian had hadn't been found with a blade, so the ruling was that he had used a broken glass. I've been in enough bar fights to know shards of glass can't make cuts that perfect. The big question, though, was this. Ian Boxstead's body was filthy and covered in lacerations. So, where was the red? The Met weren't being honest with Hannah Boxstead, and I promised her that I would find out why. It's a shame that, once I had, I had to start being dishonest with her too. Not because I'm a liar, but because I couldn't risk her digging any deeper. My first stop was the possible crime scene. Ian had been found by a homeless guy on an abandoned industrial estate in Bethnal Green. Turned out to be a waste of an oyster swipe on that initial journey at least. The Met had already picked the place clean, and a week's worth of the city's background motion had long since washed away any evidence that they may have missed. I figured this would probably be the case before I got there though. I needed somewhere to begin 
and on my usual runaway broad hunts, visiting the last known location was a good way to find that first trail. So yeah, I didn't waste too long at that empty car park the first time that I went. The second time, the time that I woke up there is a different story. We'll get to that though. At the time, I had no reason to be suspicious. I did have a need to send some photos that I had taken from my phone to Hannah Boxstead though. More to show her that I was already on the case than anything else. That's why I ducked into the shadowy internet cafe slash money transfer point across the road from the vacant lots of empty warehouses and abandoned cars. The cramped, poorly lit room was busy. Two beefy blokes behind the counter and a dozen or so scrawny guys hunched over keyboards, crammed into a room built with no more than eight occupants in mind. They had a nervous look about them. No one made eye contact, not only with me but with each other. They were all working in silence. All I could hear was the whirring of towers, the tapping of keys and the buzz of the fat blue bottle making drunken loops around the ceiling fan. It wasn't until I sat down and booted up the aging Windows 98 that I noticed the lack of speakers. None of the 8 pound an hour PCs had them. They weren't even blaring tinny badly tuned local radio from behind the counter either. A distinct oddity in London. The towers were also missing headphones or aux jacks. The audio cable slots of both mine and my neighbor's computers had been crudely melted closed with a lighter or a small blowtorch. I wish I had been curious enough to investigate this further. I had saved myself a lot of hassle later on. As it was, I just shrugged and emailed the new crime scene photos across to Hannah Boxstead, shrugging off the massive red flag as one of life's little weird moments. My second line of inquiry was the list of Ian's friends provided by Hannah Boxstead. One of them, a lad based in Elephant and Castle, agreed to meet me. An aspiring solicitor named Asim Anand, a now former classmate of the deceased. I was surprised to find Asim Anand was as eager to meet me as I was him. He had been with Ian on the night of the latter's suspicious passing. He had video evidence to prove it too. After some brief introductions at his ENC flat, mine clipped and impatient, his shaky and hushed, showed me a series of clips on his iPhone. I'll spare you the red herring, the illegal rave ASIM and Ian and a handful of other future lawmakers had visited that night wasn't in the warehouse that I soon would wake up outside covered in my own sweat and gibbering like a madman. It was a similar, disused unit about a mile away, one that was regularly used for such underground events, judging by the intricacy of the sound system and lighting rigs visible on the small screen. The first few videos were normal, Ian and his friends laughing, dancing, and smelling the white powder on somebody's coffee table. It was the fourth video that made the color drain from both mine and a sim's face. It was about 30 seconds into this clip, almost out of shot by the speaker a few feet behind the grinning a sim and two girls, that Ian changed. Not started changing. Changed. 
It was instantaneous. One frame, he was Ian Bikestead, and the next, he was not. In the space of a single strobe flash, Ian went from grinning and dancing to standing stock still. He was so tense and upright that you would be forgiven for thinking some unseen spirit had rammed an iron rod up and through his spine to the base of his skull. Plenty of the other revelers had twisted, contorted faces. Potters and pills have that effect. That's why I think none of them reacted to Ian's new face with the same gulp and sharp intake of breath as I did. One moment, Ian's features had been locked in a happy, toothy grin. The next frame, there was still in a toothy grin alright, but it was far from happy. It was far from anything. After the switch, the corners of Ian's mouth curled up so much that they almost spiraled in on themselves. The lips between them were stretched so tautly that splits and trinklets of red appeared within a few seconds. New eyes bulged far further than any chemical could induce. Rings of purple flesh surrounded them as they twitched and heaved in the sockets, trying to free themselves from his face. His eyelids folded back and in on themselves, exposing the pulsing veins and capillaries on their undersides. Over the next five or six videos, a sim showed me Ian standing in the same spot with that twisted grin from various different angles. No matter where a sim had filmed from the bolt upright Ian was visible in the background, unmoving for what must have been a couple of hours. A sim had studied the footage well, because it took him pointing out the strange way Ian was breathing for me to notice. Impressive considering I made a comfortable living out of noticing things. Ian Boxstead was alternating which lung he breathed out of. Left, then right. Left, then right. Nostrils flaring alternately in short, a rhythmic burst. He stood there, leaning to and fro slightly as the opposing halves of his chest rose and fell like a seesaw, right until the final two videos. I'm a proud man. I value stoicism. It brings me no joy at all to admit that I let out a high-pitched yelp whine in the penultimate clip. The grinning statue did the unthinkable. It moved. On a trigger known only to whatever mind lay beyond those bulging eyes, the Ian thing turned 180 on its left heel. It marched through a crowd of gurning ravers moving its legs with stiff but fluid swings like a parading soldier or a 50s lead wind-up toy. Before the footage ended, it was standing in front of a man-sized speaker, face inches away from the vibrating surface. The last footage was of a sim vomiting purple liquid into a bin. Over his shoulder, Ian Boxted was clearly visible. He was pushing his head into the speaker with such force that his skull rattled violently. He held it there for a full five minutes, until dark streaks started to pour from his ears and pull at his chin. Before the clip cut to black, I was given a brief glance of his broken face. The curled grin was gone, the nose was broken, and the red from the flesh wound was mixed with confused tears. Ian had vanished after that. 
Uh, Sim agreed to send me the footage on the condition that I never contacted him again. He was very clear that he had only reached out to me to pass the torch, so to speak. He wanted out. I should have followed his example. Ain't hindsight bad. I uploaded the clips to YouTube when I got back to my office and I took a nap. This is actually a pro gamer move in the world of private investigation. If something is hiding then they can't resist testing how findable they are. And besides, I had no idea what the heck I was looking at anyway. I was hoping just as much for an explanation of the kind of psychological break that caused Ian's behavior as I was for another lead. My theory was something neurological at that point, you understand. Something still grounded in the rational, the explainable. When I woke a few hours later, I still had no explanation, but I did have another lead. Among the hundreds of cries of fake which protected my montage video from a takedown, there was one that offered a glimmer of hope. Well, what I thought at the time was hope. What was it that the Red Squid guy said in Star Wars? Anyway, one commenter left a lengthy response urging me to reach out. The poster claimed to have witnessed the exact same thing at another nightclub a few months prior, and had a video to prove it. My mind began racing with visions of me on the front page of the papers. The hero that exposed the dangerous new high-killing London's youth. I couldn't reply to Speaker Rider 81 fast enough. I fist-pumped when he responded in five minutes to tell me. He lived so close that I could be on his doorstep in about ten minutes. The journey was short but not simple. The Blackberry Root Planner took me down alleys and side passages that I hadn't known of before, despite living in the area for over a decade. The ruckus of the main roads dimmed into quietness with each turn. The amber haze of light pollution that I associated with civilization, less and less visible on each new, unfamiliar street. My phone assured me the journey had indeed only taken ten minutes by the time, that I had reached the right row of terraced houses in the maze of terraced houses. It felt a lot longer though, and my legs ached to prove it. Other than a hallway light on the second floor of the first house that I passed, a bed-raggled fox digging through a wheelie bin was the only sign of life. I shivered, despite the night air not being cold. Speaker Rider 81 lived at house number 12 on this suburban street. When I knocked on the red wooden door, despite no lights being on in this house either, I found it unlocked and swinging open on a single light tap from my knuckles. I walked in half expecting to find signs of a burglary or a struggle, maybe even a squad full of junkies and vagrants. What I didn't expect to find was the cleanest and emptiest house that I had ever come across. The house was uninhabited not just by people, but by anything. I spent nearly two hours pulling up floorboards and scouring empty cupboards, determined not to have wasted time on what now felt like an obvious prank. Well, what at first felt like an obvious prank. The more time I spent pulling apart that house though, the more my frantic searching regained solid purpose. Something was wrong with that house, and until I found whatever I was looking for, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what.
My first guess was a show home, but even there decked with some kind of furniture beyond built-in cupboards. The house's exterior had been filthy and dilapidated, like the rest of the street. The inside couldn't have been further from this. With the exception of the exposed concrete or floorboards, even the kitchen and bathroom had no tiles or linoleum. Every surface had been cleaned to sterility. Recently too, some of the walls were still damp and the faint acrid tang of bleach was still in the air. What furniture did remain, the aforementioned cupboards and walled-in sinks and bathroom facilities had received the same treatment. They had been scrubbed to look immaculate. I doubt I could have even found a flake of dead skin. Never mind his speaker rider 81 or his case cracking footage. In the end, I gave up and pulled out my phone to call the taxi. A poor woman on the other end of the line had never heard of the address and neither had her computing system. This was one normality, ignoring lump of weirdness too many for me. I did what I always do when I feel out of my depth. I saw red. My profanity-laden attempts to explain my location were loud. That's why I didn't hear the guy with the cricket bat unlock the front door. When I came to, I was strapped to a chair. The top of my skull ate. And when I moved, I could feel the peeling of dried red on the back of my neck. I wasn't alone. Three of the men from the Currency Exchange Internet Cafe were standing over me. They weren't around for long though. I had just enough time to start yelling at them, reminding them that I recognized them and knew who exactly they were, when they wordlessly turned and left a single file through a heavy metal door. The room it clanged shut behind was as unsettlingly clean as Speaker Rider 81's house. I knew I must have been moved at least a few miles, because the vents and pipes on this whitewashed brick wall screamed industrial warehouse. The smell of bleach was stronger here, strong enough to cough and gag as I struggled against the thick belts holding me in place. There were other smells too, disinfectant, chlorine, and other detergent vapors that sting the nostrils and burn the lungs. For a moment, I worried that they were gassing me, but when the actual reason for their bringing me here revealed itself, I realized I wasn't so lucky. The only object in the room aside from myself and the chair was a small Bluetooth speaker, standing alone on the polished concrete a few feet in front of me. It was one of those portable jobs that couldn't have been larger than my fist. Only a few seconds after I paid it attention, the green LED indicating a paired connection shimmered into life. The music it played to the echoey room was tinny, a warbly mix that was all treble and no bass. The tune itself wasn't remarkable. It was some pop hit that had been popular that summer. Katy Perry or Taylor Swift, I think. How much these screeching tones made my face itch immediately caught my attention, though. I began yanking and pulling against the thick belts, no longer trying to free myself but just a hand to scratch my face. Within a few seconds, the unpleasant scritch-scratch across my every facial feature had been twisting them in agony. It was at this point that I stopped seeing red and started seeing yellow. And before I could scream though, there was a click. 
The glare of the strip bulb cutting out and throwing the bleach-coated room into darkness took me completely by surprise. Surprised that I didn't have long to wallow in. The muscles in my back tensed. The moment the light left, I felt something other than shadows step in to take its place. Something behind me. Some presence that I was as aware of as the leather boat stopping me from running for the door. I couldn't hear it, but I knew from the growing, prickling, replacing the sensation of dry red on my neck that it was taking slow, deliberate steps towards me. I did scream now. A loud scream. A scream even the hypervigilant machismo I inherited from my father isn't ashamed of. It was when those screams bounced and echoed off the hidden walls that I noticed they, and the waves of tinny noise from the speaker, weren't behaving right. They weren't reverberating evenly around the room, as they should have been. They were being directed. Every yell, every bar of tinny pop music rushing back past my ears much louder on the return journey. Every sound zipped in word like a passing freight train pulling behind me either by or into whatever was now gut-churningly close to the back of my neck. The itching in my face had progressed to burning by this point, as had the hot breath on the back of my neck. I wrenched against the belt so hard that rivers of warm redness descended from the new flashes of pain at my wrists and ankles. My yells, pleas, and screams were all stuck behind me, whooshing past my ears and vanishing without echo or reverb. The scalding breath moved up to behind my left ear. The corners of my mouth felt more and more like they were soaked in acid with every inch it moved. I must have still been screaming, but I could no longer hear it. The barrage of sound ripped through every bone and ligament of my body, crushing and squeezing them with an intense pressure I cannot explain nor do I ever want to be able to. The excruciating vibrations reached their final crescendo when the thing they gave form placed a clawed, bleach-smelling hand on my shoulder. Everything stopped. In an instant, the burning, the crushing pressure on my insides, and the boiling grip of that gnarled, translucent hand were gone. That would have relieved me were it not for everything else going along with them. My limbs, a moment ago screaming in agony as they fought, a losing battle against leather bindings, had gone. My throbbing eyes no longer throbbed, because they no longer were anything. My screaming had ceased because I had no mouth to scream with. I was nothing beyond disembodied awareness, a bodiless sense of dread and wilting sanity drifting alone in a void. At least, I was alone at first. Once I was aware of my lack of surroundings, things started to notice me. Things that moved and shifted in the dark. Curious things, intrigued by movement in this place, where all had been still since before there was a universe for our star to be birthed in. I could feel, or sense, or know, them circling around me. Their hunger was palpable. It filled the empty space, and if I had lungs, the fear I became would have burst them. 
I felt the first of these unspeakable presences crash upon me when, for the second time, everything stopped. I could feel tarmac against my cheek. That didn't amaze me as much as the fact that I could feel my cheek, and my face, and my arms and legs and all the other parts that I was supposed to have. They hurt, but they weren't burning. Two good reasons to open my eyes. I was in a car park, by a warehouse. The same car park that unfortunate homeless man had found. The even more unfortunate Ian Boxstead's body in. I was naked and bruised and covered in a few cuts, but alive. As my memories of how I'd found myself like this, and on concrete started to return, so too did a panic rise in my gut. I ran screaming from that car park in the end, looking up to see the three men from that sterilized room, one of them menacingly holding a cricket bat. Looking down from a window on the top floor was enough. Their message and their expressions were clear. That was a warning. Don't go poking around where you're not wanted. At first, I thought they were worried that I would expose them. But now I know better. I never accepted another case. I shut down my company and all websites and social accounts. But not before crying under a cold shower for eight hours straight. I've never gone back to Bethnal Green. I don't know if that, those, whatever happened is limited to there. I've avoided spending too long around speakers and the years since though, just in case. I told Hannah Boxted the trail had run cold. What else could I do? She broke down into uncontrollable sobs. And this was when I first noticed that something had changed in me. Her tears meant nothing to me. They prompted no pity, yet at the same time, no annoyance. Emotionally, I was completely blank. It's been the same ever since. My psychiatrist uses words like sociopath or personality disorder, but I know better though. When that thing touched my core in the void, it took something with it. It left me half full, partially empty, missing whatever part of the spirit or soul that allows you to connect with others. It's probably why I do so well as a debt collector. The sight of crying mothers and sobbing children does nothing to me as I break a father's arms over insignificantly small missed gambling payments. That's why I don't want you to go digging. I don't want to risk anyone following me down the rabbit hole. As scared of it as I was, the thing in Bethnal Green has blessed me. It chose me. I was worthy where Ian and the men from the internet cafe were not. It's a burden being there chosen. It's one I wish I had never taken. But now it's mine and I will never release it. Those things in the dark are mine. Their blessing is mine. When I'm ready, 
I will go back to Bethnal Green. I will turn on my speakers and meet them again. And once more, I will bask in their liberating touch and refuse to share it with anyone. I didn't believe the rumors of the local dogmen until the girl went missing. Written by 02321. Growing up, my small town always had stories of dog-like monsters in the woods. I had thought they were stories that parents used to keep their kids in at night, or to keep them from getting lost in the woods. As I got older, I had never seen or heard anything strange coming from the surrounding forest at night. But still, at least one person in any friend group had a dogman story to tell. I would humor them and move on to more realistic topics. It wasn't until Carrie Little went missing in the woods and I joined a volunteer group to find her that I started to change my mind about the local tales. Carrie was the definition of perfect. She got top scores in her grades and was the top player on her basketball team. She was very polite and volunteered at the church when she wasn't busy with basketball. Her family was very close with the church as well. Every event, they went all out. Her father spent every spare moment at the church. He might as well have been running the place. When Carrie didn't come home on a Friday night, it was a very big deal in our small, sleepy town. The only black spot on her otherwise spotless record was she had started to hang out with the school's outcast, Yuri. I knew his family better than I knew about hers. They lived in the middle of the woods. He walked five miles each day to school, his clothing worn and threadbare. They mostly lived off the land and off of the government welfare the rest of the town complained about. The family was reclusive, but didn't cause any trouble. When his mother was still alive, she went into town with Yuri. After she had passed, people saw less and less of him. When I had lost my childhood dog in the woods, Yuri's father was the one to find him. I may have been the only person in that town who didn't have an issue with that forest-dwelling family. That's why the sheriff requested I speak with them about Carrie with a deputy present. I really don't think they have anything to do with this. I said to Deputy Carson while we drove along the bumpy forest road. We've searched their place already and found nothing but. She was last seen walking into the woods with Yuri. There just has to be something there. I don't think they would do anything either. I just feel like they know something. He said sounding a bit strained. Two days already passed. The entire town was out in the woods looking for Carrie. And the school even let the students have the day off to let them do whatever they could to help. Some made up missing flyers to start driving them to neighboring towns. And the older high school kids joined in with the volunteer search teams. Carrie was their beloved classmate. She should be getting ready for prom, not lost somewhere scared and alone. I didn't want to think the Key family had anything to do with this, but at the same time, I wanted Carrie to be found. 
Pulling up to the end of the road, we needed to walk the rest of the way. A few minutes into the forest and I was a dripping in sweat. Deputy Carson not looking any better. Tell me again, why am I going with you on this? I asked him huffing in the humid air. Because, Perry, if I went alone, Mr. Keeve would shoot me. Carson told me in a tone that implied he was suffering just as much as I was in the heat. By the time we reached the small cabin in the woods, we were both panting and nearly done in from the short hike. Mr. Keeve was out front, chopping wood as if it wasn't a million degrees outside. He didn't even look at us as we arrived. Deputy Carson stayed back, suddenly interested in a pile of rotting leaves to let me talk along with the man. Mr. Keeve was a large guy, a full grain beard and massive shoulders, made him look like a person you would not want to mess with. Even I was a little scared of him, but I tried pushing that fear back to remember how he had found Marley before he had got mauled by some forest animal. It's pretty hard to be doing some chores, don't you think? I thought I sounded friendly. Mr. Keeve didn't even look up at me. I don't know anything about the girl. His voice was low and rough. With one great swing of the axe, he split a very big hunk of wood in half. I think I heard Carson jump at the noise it made. Yeah, there was no way the deputy could do this alone. Listen, Mr. Keeve. I might be the only person in this town who believes your family has nothing to do with this. You're not at all the type to hurt anyone. If someone goes missing in the woods, you're always the one to track them down, alive or not. I just thought maybe Yuri might remember something Carrie said that night. Anything else he hasn't told us yet. Maybe it was a little thing he didn't think important, but we just want to know that she's safe. That's all. I was rambling. Still, Mr. Keeve stopped chopping to look at me. His steel-colored eyes gave me a slight chill when they landed on me. I trusted him, but his stare still burned down to my bones. I glanced around, trying to avoid it, to see some dog tracks in the dirt around us. I worked as the only vet in town and wasn't aware of the family owning any dogs. If they had some, I had never seen them for the shots. Yuri has nothing to say. Mr. Keeve was still speaking with me, but I felt like the last answer was directed to Carson behind me. A hint of hope came to my stomach. Maybe Mr. Keeve would speak with me if I was alone. Mr. Keeve didn't trust the local policeman, and rightfully so. The sheriff treated him poorly. Sometimes bringing him in for any petty crime he could think of instead of putting the effort into finding the real person responsible. With the entire town already looking down on him, it was easy for the sheriff to get away with it. Alright, uh, thank you for your time. Carson gave me a look as I turned and grabbed him by the arm to start to drag him down the trail. I would come back alone later. Mr. Keeve might tell something that he had been holding back, but only if the deputy didn't make a scene and left with me. Confused, Carson went along, giving a few backwards glances towards the large golf man. When we were out of earshot, uh, he spoke. Why did you give up so fast? He doesn't like you. If you're with me, he won't talk. 
Carson let out a sigh as an agreement. In his mind, we heightened sweated for nothing. I didn't tell him my plan of coming by later. He might insist that I go right back, and I knew Mr. Key would stay silent if he felt that I was working for the cops. The radio in Carson's truck was going off when we got back. He forgot all about Mr. Keeve in the woods when he picked up the receiver. A search group had found something about a mile away and didn't want to touch it until some sort of law enforcement looked it over. I jumped into the truck to go with him, knowing that he didn't have the time to drop me off anywhere. A drive and a hike later, we found ourselves in the middle of the woods looking at a recent camp. It was a small clearing with some sleeping bags and opened can of spam and a tiny dying fire. Beside one of these sleeping bags was what made the volunteers call us over. Carrie Sneakers. Her and another teammate owned the same brand and size. In practice, they kept mixing them up so Carrie wrote her name on the inside of them. Everyone hoped this was a sign that she was still alive. I stayed out of the way, asking one of the volunteers to give me a ride back into town because... Carson would be at the site for a while. One agreed after they had finished searching for the day, and I joined them. Just before the other deputy arrived and the volunteers had left with me, I heard something off into the forest. The rest noticed me staring off in the distance, and we all became silent trying to hear. Tense. We all listened when a soft bark came from the trees. Is that a search dog? One of them asked. Carson shook his head knowing no search dogs would be in that area. We called out for the dog, and the two other men went into the woods a little trying to find it. In the end, we didn't hear any more barking, or found any traces of a dog being in the area. One of the volunteers looked a little scared. Grew up hearing the tales about the man-eating dogmen in the woods at no bet. When the other deputy came, he took statements and we were no longer needed. The news of finding Carrie's sneakers flew through town. They gave people hope on finding her soon. The day dried down and the forest gave up no more clues. A heavy air came over everyone, as we knew it would soon be the third day of her missing in the woods, and that was not good at all. Before I drove down to the forest trail that night... I bought a six-pack of beer from the gas station, hoping that would endear me to the odd forest man. It was nearly dark by the time that I arrived at the Keeves family cabin. The front light of the cabin was on. Here I thought the place didn't have any electricity. Before I even finished walking up the path, Mr. Keeve came out, shotgun at his side. It's just me. I said, holding my hands into the air, six-pack heavy. I brought a peace offering. Mr. Keeve looked at the beer and then at me. Slowly, he leaned the gun against the front door frame and summoned me over. I found a seat on the tree stump and he stood. The beer was warm but better than nothing. Did the cops send you? He asked straight out. No, I just was wondering if you really didn't know anything. No one has seen Yuri either so I don't think that he hurt her. If they ran away together, then what's the harm saying so? We just want to know that she's alright. Carrie was a perfect student, but that means a lot of pressure. 
there's no wonder that you would run off leaving behind all those expectations and hard work. She could be ashamed that she couldn't handle all of it, so that's why she didn't tell anyone her plan. Yuri was a good kid that would shoulder all the blame if it meant helping her out. But they were dumb kids, going about all of this the wrong way. He might just be trying to avoid everyone blaming him for her missing, Mr. Keeve pointed out. Yeah, that might be true. He is a bit of a sensitive kid, but I can't help but feel as if you know where they both are. If you didn't, you would be the first one out in the woods looking for her. The fact you're just staying at home might mean you're sure that she's alright, or at least not out in the woods. He paused a mid-sip of his beer. It was a clue that I might be onto something. The fact that he was not out in the woods, tearing through it, trying to find a poor lost girl, was clear that he knew something the rest of us didn't. The sheriff was being too stubborn to see that fact. He stood, thinking about what to say next and I fought back a smile. Off in the distance, I thought that I heard some noise in the woods. Taking my eyes off of him, I squinted into the darkness. For a second... I saw a pair of eyes looking back at me. It didn't scare me. After all, it could just be any kind of forest animal looking at us. I heard him clear his throat and turn my head back to the man. How many days has it been? Mr. Keefe asked, his expression hard to read in the dying light. Three. I answered, pulse quickening with hope. He took a long sip of his beer. It looked as if he was considering something. With a small kick of the dirt, he decided to trust me enough to tell me. Tomorrow or the next day, you'll know why Carrie would want to leave. Yuri went with her. I can't say where they are besides safe in the woods. The postal services are slow around here, so that's why it took so long. That was it. It was everything that you'd tell me, but it was enough for now. I knew that she went out on her own free will. She was still missing, but at least alive and safe. Yuri knew these woods and could take care of her until they came back. Or when they came back. The look on Mr. Keeve's face made it seem as if he really had lost a son. I dearly hoped those two would return after everything died down, no matter what information came to light. I left the rest of the beer and headed back to my car. Now all I could do was wait. I wasn't going to tell Carson what I had heard for at least two days just in case. If I did, I felt like I would be betraying Mr. Keeve's trust in me. Besides, even if I told him or the sheriff, what else could they do? It wasn't a waste of time still searching for her, and Mr. Keeve didn't actually know their location. But after two days, I would repeat what I had heard. In the later afternoon, I found out why a girl like Carrie would want to run off. I met Deputy Carson in a coffee shop looking shell-shocked. I asked him what was going on. After looking around, he ordered a coffee and that led me outside. He leaned against his truck, not even noticing the drink in his hand. You'll learn about this soon. Heck, everyone is going to. Can you not tell anyone I told you this before? The news had dropped, though. I nodded and he went on. Carrie's father, Kelvin, he... 
there is a package that came in the mail for the sheriff. It was a hard drive of all these videos of him. Christ, him and a girl from church. She's young, I just... No one expected this. The sheriff is arresting him now. With all the proof, there's no way that'll walk. I don't understand how no one knew. There weren't any signs. My entire body felt cold. I never would have expected this either. Calvin Little was a saint. At least we all thought he was. Carrie was a hero if she had mailed the proof to out an end to what he was doing. Carson didn't use the exact words about what had happened, but he spouted out enough for me to get the hint. This would be hard on the entire town. Not only on the family of the girl involved, but Carson saw Calvin like a father figure. And he wasn't the only one. A lot of the town did. We should talk to Mr. Keeve again. I think Carrie told Yuri about this and he told his father. He didn't say anything because it would be his word against the most well-liked man in town. If Yuri and Carrie ran off somewhere, he might have some sort of clue of where they went. I explained. I knew that I couldn't hide what he had told me last night now. Carson nodded, looking sickly and pale. He tossed out his coffee and let me get into his truck before driving back off to the forest road down to the cabin. I felt a little like I was betraying Mr. Keeve, but the police would eventually go and see him. I stayed with Carson as he asked Mr. Keeve to come down to the station with us, and the man silently came along. Once again, standing in those woods, I felt like something was watching us just out of sight. It made my arms prickle, and I looked around trying to see whatever it might be, but seeing nothing. Mr. Keeve stayed at the station for the rest of the day. It was fairly busy with everything that just came to light. Carson would be unavailable, so I got my car and waited to give Mr. Keeve a ride back home when he was finished. The ride back to his place was a bit awkward. He was silent the entire way, and far too big to really fit inside my car. Stone cold, he didn't move even as my small car had issues going over the bumps in the forest road. The missing girl was yet to be found. I wasn't sure what was going to happen from now on. If people would keep searching for her, if they knew she left because of her father. When we got to the end of the road and to the trail he needed to take back to the cabin, I parked the car but I kept the high beams on. The air inside the car was tense to say the least. I opened my mouth to say something. When I saw a figure walk onto the trail a few feet from the car, darting out, I stood beside the car, door open, mouth dry. The girl that everyone fretted and looked for was standing on the trail wrapped in a blanket. I thought something terrible had happened to her when I saw her. Red hair a mass, feet bare and dirty. She had a healing bite in her neck from what I assumed to be some sort of animal. Maybe a dog bite, but I wasn't sure. When I took a step towards her, she skidded back, clutching at her blanket. She didn't look like she recognized me at all. Are you alright? I asked her, voice hoarse. It sounded stupid to my own ears, but I couldn't think of anything else to say. What on earth had happened to her? A flicker came to her eyes when she looked over towards me. I took another small step forward, hoping not to scare her away. If she ran, I may not catch up to her in the dark. 
I froze when I saw two flickering red lights behind her. I knew they were the eyes from some sort of animal, but didn't know what animal that lived in the woods with red eyes. Carrie, come on. Yuri's soft voice came, but I couldn't see him in the dark trees. She turned, and I still am not sure I believe what I saw. In a blink of an eye, I was no longer looking at a beloved missing girl, but a large wolf. My work is a vet, and I've seen enough dogs to know this was no breed man created. It had reddish-brown fur and the blanket Carrie had just a moment before on its back. The thing was huge, almost as big as my car. I stood, unable to move. The thing looked over its shoulder at me, red eyes, and making me blood cold. It was only then that I remembered Mystery Keeve was still there. I turned my head over in a stiff, jerky motion, and I saw him standing outside on the other side of the car. He gave me a small nod and then crouched down. Instead of the man that I knew, and trusted walking out from the other side of the car, another wolf came trotting out. Gray and huge, I just didn't think it could be real. Their heads looked wolf-like, but their bodies, they looked a bit off, as if their arms and legs were too long. It wasn't a natural shape. The gray creature met up with the reddish one, and they both darted off into the dark woods. I collapsed on the spot, unable to stop them, or able to do anything at all. As I sat there, my mind slowly started to work again and I heard some howling off in the trees. Carrie, Yuri, and Mr. Keeve were not seen again since. I was the only one who knew the true reason why. Even if the wolf creatures I saw weren't real, I fully believe Carrie and Yuri are somewhere happy together. It was her choice to leave, and Mr. Keeve took over as being the father that girl deserved. I took a job as a night shift cab driver. My passengers aren't human. Written by Alpha Cryptid. My name is Felix. I am 22 years old. And I earn a living off of small time jobs. Made some bad decisions during my teenage years. And I dropped out of high school at the age of 18. I was young, wild, and reckless. I didn't care about anyone's opinion, and I was privileged enough to be born in a decent household. My father earned a lot of money, so I never got a job. But I came to my senses after my dad passed away in an accident. I was still 18. The burden to provide for the family now fell upon my shoulders. I had to put food on the table for myself, my mother, and my seven-year-old sister from then on. I did a lot of odd work just to get a sustainable income. I mowed lawns, babysat for my neighbors, walked other people's dogs just to get my hands on a few dollars. At 20 years old, I was not only doing the work I did when I was 18, but I also got a nighttime job as a security guard in a mall. I was working really hard every day just to survive. 
and I was sleep deprived most of the time. So after working like this for two years, I became very irritable and short-tempered. I got fired from my job for misbehaving with the owner's son. Until that point of time, I didn't know that saving a girl from two drunk men, catcalling her, was misbehaving. But okay, whatever. I started looking for another nighttime job on Craigslist, and I came across an ad. It was a job offer by a cab company. It read, Position open as a night shift cab driver at R Cabs. Work six hours a day, 12 a.m. to 6 a.m., six days a week. Earn $150 a day. For more information, call the number below. I was excited on seeing such a great offer. I calculated the monthly income, which came out to a total of around $3,600 a month. With this amount of money, I could stop mowing lawns and taking care of babies, all while providing for my family and even buying them gifts every once in a while. Not to mention the fact that, because I wouldn't be working day shifts if I got this job, I could catch up on my sleep. I called up the number given on the ad. A smooth, high-pitched male voice answered the call. He introduced himself as Dave. I asked about the job, and after a quick interview over the phone, I was hired. The only thing that struck me as odd were some of the questions that he had asked. The majority of them were pretty normal though. Are you nocturnal or have difficulty staying up at night? What's your age? But he also asked some rather odd questions. Are you an imaginative man? Can you follow a strict list of rules to the T if asked to? Can you keep calm under hazardous conditions and drive safe, even when you're speeding? The questions raised some red flags, but I was too blinded by the high amount of pay that they were offering. He told me that I could start as soon as today. I looked at the clock hanging from the wall. It was 10.12pm. I told him that I would be there at 12 a.m. sharp. My mother was ecstatic when I gave her the news. She was more happy with the fact that I could spend more time with her and catch up on some sleep that she was with the pay. I thought of buying her something nice as soon as I completed my first month of work and I collected the first check. I reached the decided location at 11.58pm. It was only a kilometer away from my house, so I didn't bother bringing my car. As Dave said, the company will be providing the calves. At 12am sharp, a Prius pulled up and it parked in front of me. A man wearing all black got out of the car, and he walked over to me. He greeted me with a warm smile and gave me the keys to the car that I was supposed to be driving. It was the Prius. He congratulated me on getting the job. 
He set up the RCAP app on my mobile phone and just before leaving, handed me a piece of paper and $150 and then said, Read the paper as soon as you can. It is a list of rules for you to follow. With this, he turned around and he started walking into the night. After I saw him turn the corner, I got into the car, closed the doors and smoothed out the folded piece of paper and started reading. It read, Hey Felix, this is Dave. Now, there is something you should understand. Only you can read the text on this paper. So there's no point going to the cops or suing us. Because frankly, no one would believe you. Just keep that in mind. And also, the majority of the people that you'll pick up and drop off will not be human. Rule 1. If you get a pickup request from a number with only six digits, call them up and politely decline. Do not go within 100 meters of their location for the next two hours. Always apologize and make up a reason why you cannot come. The creature doesn't take rude remarks well. Rule number two. Always seat the passengers in the back seat and check their mirror reflection. If they have a reflection, drop them off to their location and do not ask for money. They will pay as they wish. If they do not have a reflection, take the pistol in the glove compartment and use it on yourself. It will be a marginally painless death compared to what they will do to you. Rule number three. Do not eat anything non-vegetarian in the cab. The smell of meat might capture some creature's unwanted attention. And believe me when I say, you do not want their attention. Rule number four. If you get a call from a person you know, do not answer the call. It is not them. If you do respond to them, you will hear a deafening screech which has been responsible for bursting eardrums in the past. Rule number five. Do not try to abandon the car on the road, or you will die the most brutal way your brain can imagine. Yes, they can read minds. Rule number six. You cannot give this job up without working here for at least two weeks. For reasons I cannot specify because of the company's policy. Rule number seven. If there are dark figures running along the car, speed up and try to ignore them. Do not stop or slow down. If you maintain a speed of 80 plus kilometers per hour, they will not be able to reach you. The other option is driving on a busy road. They will perform mock charges and give you illusions that they are gaining on you. But if you're driving fast, just keep driving fast for three to four more minutes and they will be gone. Rule number eight. If you smell rotten meat in the back seat, do not look behind you. Instead, take the pistol from the glove compartment, close your eyes. Turn around and fire on all the three back seats. It'll be gone. 
It can't hurt you if you can't see it. Rule number nine. If your engine dies down, do not step out of the car. It is a bait to get you outside. Wait for 20 to 30 minutes, and the car should start right back up. Rule number 10. Do not dial anyone. They will not pick up. Calling for help also annoys the creatures after you. Your most beloved person might die of natural causes the next day if you try to reach out to people who will not be picking up because their phones won't even be ringing. Rule number 11. At 6 a.m., bring this car to your house, leave the key in, and walk back inside your home. The car will disappear in an hour or so, and it'll be right back there the next night at 12 a.m. I chuckled at the stupid list. Scary prank on the new guy, huh? I whispered under my breath, and I started driving. After about five to ten minutes, my mom started calling. Just before I could pick up out of instinct, I froze with fear. I could smell the scent of rotting meat. I slowly opened the glove compartment, took out the pistol, closed my eyes, and then turned around and shot six rounds, two bullets at each seat. I heard a loud shriek. After about five seconds, I opened my eyes up to see that these seats were empty, but one of the windows was open and there was some red left on the left seat. I cleaned it up with a towel that I kept in the glove compartment, and I started driving again. I soon got a request. It was a regular number. I started driving towards its location. The passenger was a girl. She got in the back seat, and I started driving. I slowly tilted the rearview mirror, hoping and praying that she had a reflection. Luckily, she did. We eventually reached her destination, which was on a farm on the outskirts of town. She tipped me ten bucks and got out of the car, and climbed up one of the farm's walls with ease. I sat there in the car, shocked. Eventually, the bleeding of goats and the sound of flesh tearing broke me out of my trance, and I started driving away quickly. After half an hour of contemplating what I had just witnessed, I received another request. I checked its location. It was as if my heart stopped beating. When I saw the passenger's number, it only had six digits, and it was just 87 meters away from me. I started my car back up, and I started driving. It was gaining on me. I started panicking. It was only 50 meters away from me now, and I could now feel the ground shaking, footsteps, and low-pitched growls. I sped up to nearly 100 kilometers per hour and noticed that I was successfully moving away from it. 
I was at 92 meters away from it when I noticed them. The dark figures. They were running alongside my car. I almost swerved off the road and into a wall two times. But I kept my cool and I tried my best to ignore them. The figures, which looked like shadows of a human just a minute ago, distorted into demonic shadows within seconds. The walls around me started to bleed. I somehow maintained a consistent speed of nearly 100 kilometers per hour without crashing. And after a short, intense change, everything was suddenly back to normal. I was beginning to think that I had lost my mind. I wanted to call my mother, but with everything that had happened to us up until that point, I didn't want to break a rule. And then I remembered. I had to make a call to the passenger and apologize. And that's what I did. It sounded like some charismatic young person over the phone, but I knew better. After this whole ordeal was over, it was just 4am, and the next two hours passed by pretty normally. I picked up three more passengers, but they seemed normal, and I did exactly what Dave told me to do. Parked the car outside of my house and I went to sleep. I woke up at 9am and gave my mother the 150. She was really happy. I knew if I told her what had actually gone down, that she would not believe me. So, I'm sitting here typing this at 10pm. I do not want to go back to that car again, but I have no option and no one will believe me. If I don't make it, here lies my story. If I do make it through this night, I'll be grateful to God. I just wanted to know, has anybody else gotten this job offer from Arcabs? The prison I'm in is a front for something far worse. Written by Christian Wallace. I've been here for three months and it's a nightmare that won't end. It began with a bus dropping me off 500 meters from the gate. By the time I looked around, the driver had reversed and was already speeding away. In hindsight, that should have been fair warning. After that, I had practically checked myself in. No one was here to introduce me. No one to tell me what to do either. If I wanted to, I could have just walked straight out the front gate. But wherever the heck this place is, it's in the middle of one blisteringly hot desert. No one's escaping it by foot. Straight away, I knew something was wrong. First day, no one spoke to me. I found all the inmates and guards out in the yard staring at the horizon. Not a single one would look at me. By the second day, I had gotten so hungry, I sat in the canteen waiting, but no one showed up. One night came with no sign of anyone. I had to go back in and eat whatever I could find. I took a knife too, while I had the chance. If only because the guards never locked the bars, which I thought would have made me feel better, but it didn't. 
I did manage to find an old library computer that had internet access, but its connection was so slow I couldn't do much. It was either that or keep watching everyone else, strangely frightened by what I saw. They just spent all day staring at the desert, and when the sun set, they would come inside and sleep, and then go right back to it the next day. Walking around one night, I found that the guards didn't even go home at the end of the day. They just laid down on the floor of the staff room, packed together like tuna, with their eyes closed. I tried looking for the doctor's office, figuring there must be some medics or someone around who wasn't a guard. I found it on one of the first of many basement levels near a stairway by my cell block. Just a quick look at those stairs and the buzzing, flickering lights that spiraled downwards into complete darkness. It unsettled me. I carefully went down one floor to the doctor's and found a bloody handprint smeared across the door. I tried the handle anyway, but it was locked. Something about those stairs scared the crap out of me, so I didn't dare go down another flight. I just came back up, feeling shaken in a way that was hard to explain. After that, I tried to distract myself, hoping to put the crazy fear out of my mind. Some days, I worked out or just messed about in the yard on my own. Other days, I would raid the pantry and cook up a decent meal. At one point, I found an old projector and got it working. I fell asleep in the gym watching James Bond, but when I woke up, there was a prisoner staring at me from the open doors. It wasn't the first time something like that had happened either. Sometimes, they would be far away. I would be walking and I would look up and see a single face staring down at me, out of a cell window or looking at me from a distant corner. Other times, I would settle down and wake up to one of them, leering at me from the doorway of my cell. It made it impossible to relax, so I started exploring the prison desperate to find someone sane who would talk to me. The place was huge, and I did find a large construction site where they must have been expanding the blocks, but any work had stopped. There were all these abandoned porta cabins and caterpillars just sitting out in the sun. Inside the cabins, I found coats hanging up on hooks with wallets still inside the pockets, shoes and cubby holes, and a few cars that looked like they hadn't moved for weeks. There was even half-eaten food on some of the tables. In one of the half-finished buildings, I found a bunch of heavy-duty crates stacked up around back. Out of curiosity, I cracked one open when, all of a sudden, this guy jumped out screaming with a wrench in one hand, and his car keys held like a knuckle duster in the other. My heart sank and I froze, but luckily, he stopped just before he actually hit me. I think I said something as he swung the wrench, but I was so terrified, I don't even know what. I just remember this long moment where... We were left looking at each other, completely still until eventually, and the guy slowly pulled his finger up to his lips and shushed me. Without making another sound, he lowered himself back into the crate and carefully pulled the lid back into place, leaving me confused. 
I tried to pry the lid off again, but he held on tight and pleaded in a hissing whisper. Go away. Get your own hiding place. That night, I had a bit of a brainstorm and thought that maybe he was a homeless guy just hiding out from the desert sun. So I went back the next day with some cigarettes and a little flask of water, but he was gone. The lid had been smashed a bit, and when I looked inside, there were just a bunch of empty water bottles, a high-vis jacket, and a god-awful smell. I tried calling out for him, but no one shouted back. At one point, I looked around solitary and found all the doors wide open, except for one where a bunch of chairs had been piled up against the door. I couldn't open it, but I did manage to spy a bunch of stuff written on the walls through the food slot. There was even a makeshift bed and a radio. I asked if anyone was in there, but all they heard was some shuffling in response. I even tried going back to the doctor's, but when I got to the top of the stairs and looked down, I saw a bloodied wrench a few floors below. It looked just like the one I had been attacked with, and I just backed away. That night, I stopped sleeping in my cell. The bars were always opened, and I didn't feel safe. Instead, I found a cleaning cupboard and stole the keys from an abandoned office. That's where I slept from then on. It was uncomfortable lying on that small floor, but at least I had a door between me and everyone else. But the days kept passing and there was still no sign of anything remotely normal. Two months in and I realized that the prison never got any deliveries. I had been raiding the canteen night after night, kind of assuming food was going to be brought in, but I started wondering about what I would do if it didn't. It already looked like I had gone through half the meat stock and while I had a few months of food left, I knew it wouldn't last me forever. There was no one else around except me, so I started looking for ways to reach the outside world. I tried every phone that I got my hands on, but none worked, and I looked everywhere for signs of life, but everyone was just zoned out, staring at the horizon. I even considered escaping, but it would have been easy enough to just leave, but it would be a slow death in that featureless desert. I spent days racking my brain for a solution when I finally remembered something about the guy in the crate. And when I did, the realization hit me like a brick. He had been holding car keys, and there were cars in the lot. I told myself that if I could just find him, I would be able to drive out of this place. But that's when I remembered the wrench in the stairwell. I felt this pit of dread form in my stomach as I figured that chances were... The owner of those keys were down those stairs. If I wanted to leave, I needed to find him, and that was my best bet. I decided that I would need a flashlight to go down there. That meant taking one from a guard. It was easy enough, but being near one of those guys, they were scary. He was this big guy and his eyes had turned milky from the incessant staring. Redhead welled up under the lids like tears, but his expression was vacant, almost happy. It was the closest that I had ever gotten to a guard, and I was sure he would have missed the light. But it was only that night I was crouched in the cupboard, knees pulled up to my chest and trying to sleep. When a shadow blocked the light at the foot of the door, 
Someone was standing out there, but when I called out, they didn't answer. I don't know how long I stayed frozen, holding my breath as I waited for this person to move. Eventually, they moved. Their big boots started lumbering down the hallway, and I breathed a long, shuddering sigh of relief. It took me a good hour to summon the courage to open the door, but when I did... I saw no signs that anyone had ever even been there. After that, I figured there was no more time to lose. I couldn't say if it would come tomorrow or the day after, or even what it was, but something was coming and I needed to get the heck out of here. I just knew that I needed those car keys. Even if I had driven straight out and into another prison, I would have been happy. That day, I went to the stairwell and, knowing that if I stopped for even a second, I would be paralyzed by fear. I walked straight through the door and trotted down these steps like it was business as usual. I skipped right past the doctor's office, acting like the handprint didn't even bother me and down I went. Until on the fourth floor, I reached the wrench. There were no keys with it, like I had hoped. I hadn't passed them on the way either. I turned the flashlight on and pointed it down, but I saw nothing. Suddenly, from above, a door opened and then closed. Someone stepped out into the stairwell and started to walk down the concrete steps at a leisurely pace. Everything was silent except for those echoing footfalls, and I stayed perfectly still knowing that if I ran, they would hear me too. When the footsteps stopped, I waited a bit before, leaning out over the railing to look up. I couldn't help but let out a cry at what I saw staring down at me. It was the guard I had taken the torch from. His foggy eyes fixed on me with pinprick pupils, red pouring down the loose skin that hung off his face like cheap leather. He looked inhuman, and when he saw me, he grinned this slack open mouth smile like a dog greeting their owner. It was like an idiot's grin, and something about the unknowable face that made it filled me with terror, and I knew instantly that I had to flee. I ran down into the darkness, my feet covering three or four steps at once, my ankles threatening to sprain, my hands gripping the railing like iron vices, and my heart pounding. Even as I ran and heard my own feet scuff the floor in a manic sprint, I felt a horrible dread at the realization that the guard above me had not sped up at all. He was walking slowly, like he had all the time in the world. I don't think I could have ever been ready for what was down that stairwell. I wasn't prepared for how far down it would go, or how strange it would be once I got there. It was a good ten floors down before I even found another doorway, but it was open and I ran through it with glee, hoping to be away from the ominous footfalls that followed me down. Passing through the door, I found myself out in a hallway. It was dark, almost pitch black, but my flashlight let me cut through some of the gloom. Lying against one of the walls was a man without a face, his pale shaven head caved in like a boiled egg. I ran past him, wincing as some terrible part of my imagination told that he might just reach out and grab my ankle. I kept going, running for God knows how long, 
Passing endless hallways and open doors. As I ran, I glanced inside some of them, seeing garish symbols, daubed in red on the walls. One was empty, save a circle of chairs placed around a ghostly figure that hanged from the ceiling. It was a body wrapped in a white bedsheet, and it dangled with a sickening weight. At one point, I ran through a workshop, and the tools seemed to have operated on people. Something horrific had happened in this place, and I was starting to get a glimpse of what that was. Too much of it was beyond explanation. Even now, I don't know how to understand it all. I don't know what could have made red footprints on one room with a 30 feet high ceiling. Or I found a body clutching a hammer in its hand, only for me to follow the trail of its innards back to a spot where they had been nailed to the floor. Had they done that to themselves? I asked myself, even as I ran for my life. There were signs of this everywhere. Where my flashlight cast moving shadows, I saw hints of barricaded doors that had been kicked down, random scatterings of spent bullet casings, and desperate scratches gouged into the floor as people had been dragged off to God knows where. There were doors with red axes buried into them, and lockers where the doors had been torn off at the hinges. I sprinted anyway, overcome with an unstoppable, adrenaline-fueled fear, terrified by the endless kaleidoscope of black and white shapes that moved with every step and tremble of my light. All the while, those persistent steps echoed behind me. Finally, after what felt like hours of endless flight, I fell, slamming hard into the tile floor of a narrow hall. I bit my lip just to stop myself from crying out in pain and looked around to see that I had slipped in a pool of half-congealed red. Its stench was overbearing, but I ignored it. Frantically, I tried to claw my way up, grabbing onto a half-open locker to help pull myself up. I could still hear those footsteps and they were nearing, and my chest was burning with exhaustion. Desperate, I climbed into the locker and held the door shut. I switched my torch off and waited, on the verge of being sick and trying to maintain control. I couldn't see a thing, but I refused to give in to the urge to turn on my light and check. I was there for a good ten minutes. I nearly started crying. I felt like I had stumbled into some kind of demented place. I felt so utterly helpless, struggling to keep it all together even as I heard my pursuer turn a corner and approach the spot where I fell. They stopped outside the door and silence fell for what felt like eternity. I kept telling myself that he had moved on, but I don't know what I was thinking. These weren't normal circumstances, and for all I knew, my shivering panicked breaths were as loud as gunfire in those silent halls. Just as I began to wonder if he was still out there, the door was ripped open and a hand grabbed my chest and tore me out of the locker with freakish strength. I managed to turn the torch on, but it fell out of my hand and skidded across the floor where it cast the guard in a frightening silhouette. I landed on my back and tried to scrabble away, but I could find no purchase in the slick, oil-like liquid. The guard stomped forward and knelt down onto my chest. I felt overwhelmed as I looked up at the guard's face 
framed with hard black shadows. His mouth still agape with a twisted grin, and his pale eyes glaring at me with childish joy. Slowly, he wrapped his hands around my neck and started to tighten. It was like a vice. I was suddenly aware of how my neck was just soft meat, just arteries and cartilage with some segmented bone. I felt like his fingers were to tear through it all. In desperation, I reached up and I hooked my fingers into his mouth and pulled down on his jaw until the bone snapped loose, but he didn't seem to care. He kept squeezing me even as his jaw flapped around his collar. And that was when he spoke. His voice a breathy whisper even as his mouth did not move. Let him nurse you, he told me. Be nourished by a seed. In desperation, I reached up once more and gave one hard tug. His jaw came apart entirely in my hand, and I was left clutching it. But now, I had something hard on my hand and I reacted instinctively, jamming the horseshoe-shaped bone into his head. He collapsed and I pushed him off before immediately throwing up. I swallowed more than I could bear to think about it, and I gladly purged myself onto the floor. I lay there for a while, crying and throwing up in turns, until eventually I got up and grabbed the flashlight, pointing at the guard with wide eyes, alert to any signs of movement. I nudged him a few times, but as soon as I was certain that he was done, I began the painful task of trying to find my way back. I spent hours wandering down there, but I never found that same stairwell. Walking more slowly, recovering from the trauma and constantly touching my neck, I found myself starting to notice signs that this place hadn't gone insane at all. If anything, it had been built from the ground up for utter madness. I passed what looked like classrooms with bizarre anatomical pictures sketched onto the blackboards. These pictures weren't your typical ones you would see in a science classroom. They were so messed up on belief that I can't even describe them. I found one room that had a strange chair with hard iron manacles to clamp someone in place, but where there should have been a flat surface to sit, there was only a large, serrated spike. In another room, I found a one-way mirror that looked onto nothing more than a grimy, horribly stained hospital bed with restraints that hanged loosely from the frame. The yellowed sheets were somehow one of the most lurid things that I ever saw down there. I found another room filled with rows and rows of cages, not much bigger than a dog's crate, their bowls filled up with you-know-what. Somehow, I figured it wasn't animals being kept in those cages, and they weren't being fed dog food either. One of the bowls had a wedding ring in it, I even found what looked like an assembly hall where I saw signs of regular worship. I couldn't say what it was they worshipped, not at the time, but the book I found in the pulpit showed men stuck on spikes of a giant flower. But the one thing I could be certain of was that this place was built to be a twisted nightmare. I quickly came to suspect that the prison above was just a front for whatever was going on underground. God knows how many people perished down in those wretched rooms, so the place must have needed a good supply of people. 
A prison made a sensible choice for that kind of thing. Offering a steady roster of expendable people that no one cared too much about. Eventually, I did come across another stairwell. But I was heartbroken to see that it only went downwards. I couldn't help but think it was impossible to dig this deep. But I was already pretty shaken up by the laughable idea of what was or wasn't impossible. I briefly considered turning back and trying to find the way that I had come, but I didn't want to go back through that nightmare. I was certain that I would never find the way back out. Even as I looked back at the door, I noticed the one printed on it that sent chills down my spine. Education. I shuddered before going down deeper into the darkness, wondering what was next. I remember very little after escaping the education part of the prison. I must have fallen asleep at some point because I awoke in a dark stairwell with the torch lying on my lap switched off. It made sense, I guess, that I had fallen asleep given that I had been in a state of high alert for well over 24 hours. When I stood up, every part of my body hurt and I had a headache that could have killed cattle. It felt like the worst hangover of my life. I always thought that if I ever wound up in a survival situation that I would just give up. I never really thought that I had it in me to stand up, let alone keep walking. But the funny thing is, you don't have a choice. You just do it. You don't even think. You just get up and get on with it. It almost felt like I was above myself, floating in the air, watching myself descend. It's not that I wasn't scared. I just felt disconnected from my own body in a way that made it easy to keep going. I think if it wasn't for that, I probably would have just curled up in the dark stairway and cried. It was a long time going down those stairs. I found myself contemplating that sign. Education. It had felt strangely like a place of learning. A messed up psycho place for sure but one where lessons were taught and learned. I don't know if that means the prisoners were the ones learning, or the ones doing what they were doing to the prisoners, but I suspect that there wasn't even a difference. I'm not sure I even wanted to understand something like that. But of course, it begged the question, what else was there? When I finally found the next open door, my answer was both expected and strangely unsettling. Administration, the sign read. It looked so normal. You could have mistaken it for a sign in a door in any normal prison, or there would have been a bunch of disgruntled office workers punching away at their keyboards. Inside, there is a small reception room with a circular desk, and several doors behind it. Sitting at the desk was a gaunt, half-rotten woman dressed in a flowery blouse and a pencil skirt. A shard of glass had left her with a lopsided grin and she had foggy eyes with pinpoint pupils that reminded me of the guard who had chased and attacked me. Looking over at the desk, I saw that the monitor had been smashed, and the woman's fist clutching chunks of the screen's glass in a way that made me think that she had done this to herself. On the desk, I found a clipboard with red fingerprints all over it. It read, Figure Riptide Norm. Figure Riptide Normal. Normal, normal, normal. 
seed dripping down hateful folds of iridescent shimmering cats hurt me in my ears my ears normal figure riptide cat shimmer figure flash figure figure inmates are trying but norm riptide keep trying i tell them rip and strip and taste taste it taste everything hurt everything split apart like ripe fruit fruitful imaginations fruitful frugros frugal riptide figure riptide norm figure figures figure 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 riptide rip tide normal norm inmate progress eight out of ten satisfactory after putting it down, I stared at the receptionist, unsettled by the way her eyes were still open. I even gave her a poke with the flashlight, wondering if she was somehow alive. But when I nudged her, she slumped off in the chair and hit the floor with a cadaverous thump. I walked around her and chose at random one of the nearby doors. It opened into a small office, with about a dozen cubicles with low walls that a sitting person could look over. At a glance, you would have been forgiven for thinking it was a normal office, but a closer look revealed glasses full of red fingernails. Almost all of the monitors were smashed except for one near the back. It had an open word document that read, Rather, rather, rither, dither, slither, slather, bither, bother, brother, broth, ah, broth, ha, ha, my tongue tastes copper, tastes of copper. Rather, ruther, rither, dither. We are digging more than we can chew. We can stay here forever. Income, 14,000. Previous month, 11,000. Plus, 3,000. PD admin, 3,000. Previous, 5,000. PD inmates, 2,000. Previous, 3,000. KG PD miscellaneous, 200. Previous 40. And on and on it went, listing endless names and numbers. After clicking around, I found another document open. It read Keith Paul, Director of Administration. Notes on PL. See attached. Simmer, summer, bummer, rum. Rum. Can you hear me? Lowering costs in our department helped bring in a profit. Prophet, prodig, prodigal, prodigious, prodilicus, dill. Yes, it was good. We did well. They're very happy with us. The only question left now is what to do with all the left. Loft, loft over. Left, left. Overs, rovers. Rather, rither, rather, dither, dather, dath. Dad. Dad. At the time, I didn't really know what to make of any of it, but I felt a strange anxiety. This office felt a lot less threatening than the education department, but it only seemed weirded because of how close to normality it was. I would have left quickly were it not for the small canteen tucked in the corner. There was only a sink and an off-brand coffee machine, but I ran over and gladly glugged water straight from the faucet. I hadn't even thought of my need to eat or drink, but as I sucked down that water, I realized just how desperately thirsty I had been. 
and it was a brief moment of calm and an otherwise a mad a journey. Afterwards, I made the mistake of opening the freezer only to find something awful suckered to the inner door, covered in red and dripping with affluent, letting me know just how far gone the people who had worked here were. I immediately slammed it shut and trembled back out to the office, passing seats threaded with thumbtacks and keyboards, where the keys had been replaced with needles and, from the looks of it, used extensively afterwards. For a moment, I stood by the doorway looking at the reception desk, trying to work out what was different, only for me to suddenly realize that the receptionist had disappeared. Nervously, I let my eyes follow the snail-like trail that slithered around the desk until it approached the door to the office that I had just left. For a moment, I wondered if someone had come to take the body, seen me, and then left in a hurry and my heart began to race. But anxiety was quickly replaced with confusion, as my eyes followed the slimy trail right up to a vertical wall and onto the ceiling, where it disappeared into a small opening. I narrowed my eyes, staring into that dark shadow of the display ceiling tile, when I became acutely aware that a pair of pale blue eyes were staring back. Suddenly, the whole ceiling came down with a terrible crash, bringing all kinds of wires, dust, and broken tiles with it. As the dust settled, I was already backing away when the receptionist's twisted face popped up from the pile of broken drywall and collapsed ventilation. White dust caked to her face. She was smiling and her head spun until her gaze found me. That shard of glass was still wedged deep into her face, but now her swollen tongue was flicking across the jagged edges. As quickly as she had seen me, the woman threw her hands up into the air and began to scream. I didn't wait a second longer. I picked a random door and fled, finding myself running through a seemingly infinite maze of cubicles and desks lit only by some struggling fluorescent lights. The softer shadows and blurred edges hurt my eyes and rendered everything in a harsh clinical light making acutely aware I had nowhere to hide. When I briefly turned to look over my shoulder, I saw the woman pulling herself along the floor behind me with her arms, somewhat like a seal, her legs and torso dragging along the carpet. Even as I ran for my life, I couldn't quite work out if she was alive or not, but I did notice that I was easily staying ahead of her. Eventually, I lost sight of her, and after running for nearly half an hour, I finally slowed my pace and took the time to notice that the office around me was vast, but also completely out of sorts. Most desks were missing computer towers or chairs, and a lot looked pristine and clearly unused. Sometimes the monitors were facing the wrong way. Sometimes the chairs were assembled incorrectly. Occasionally, I would pass one really messed up, but it was rare. The other office had looked worked in, albeit by maniacs, but this one looked fake or unused. Looking around, I saw that I could no longer see the woman. At the time, it had seemed smarter to run around the cubicles, taking as many twists and turns as I could, but now it just meant that I couldn't even tell if she was five or five hundred meters away. I decided not to stay too long and instead kept walking at a brisk pace. I had to actively ignore the temptation to cower or hide, 
reminding myself that it hadn't worked out so well last time. I think I was in that place for a good few hours, but it's hard to say. Occasionally, I would hear a strange sort of slapping sound followed by dragging, and I would hurry along, but just as often, it would be walking for what felt like an eternity without anything changing. This place was so large, you couldn't even see the walls, and for some time, I wondered if this was some sort of weird mindscape. But just as I questioned reality, I finally saw something totally unexpected. When I first saw them, I couldn't quite believe my eyes. It had been over two days or more, I couldn't say, and the sight nearly sent me into hysterics. But there, placed cleanly on a desk like nothing special, was a set of car keys. Those keys brought back all the memories of my time above ground and, importantly, the far-off hope that I might actually escape this place. I could have cried at the thought of being free, and when I grabbed the keys, I couldn't help but let out a cry of relief and joy. I was one critical step closer to escaping. But there weren't just keys either. I looked under the desk and found a matted yellow vest and a familiar smell. It looked like a small den, tucked away and out of sight. Looking around at the hundreds and hundreds of cubicles I had to admit, it was a good hiding place. I wondered if it was made from the same old man from the construction site. There is even some old tins and moldy bread, possibly looted from the nearby office. And way way at the back of the desk and just on my reach was what looked like a bundle of papers. I weighed up the wrist before getting out of my knees and reaching out for them, making sure there was no sign of the woman. But no sooner had my hands grabbed the paper did I feel a rancid, cold hand grip my exposed ankle. She was on me so fast that I didn't even have time to cry out, her body slithering clumsily onto mine in an almost seductive wiggle. In a panic, I went to grab her wrist, but that was a mistake. As soon as I had her arms in my hands, she lunged forward, her mouth colliding with my nose in a painful thud. I quickly switched holds and now wrapped one hand around her neck and the other against her chest. She kept trying to headbutt me, but with the extra distance between us, she wound up mashing her head back and forth in a frenzy that made me feel like she might break free any second. I was still halfway under the desk and not really able to roll or sit up, so in the end, I managed to actually pull her up a little bit further end, even as she kept thrashing like a maniac. I forced her head closer to the desk until she started to hit that instead. The sound was horrible, but even worse was the way the thuds conducted through her bones and into my hand. Each impact was so close to me that I felt it in my teeth, and all I could do was wait as she did the rest herself. Only when there was nothing recognizable of her face did I finally manage to throw her off and leave her twitching on the floor. Shakily, I stood up and stumbled away, nearly falling over, and then watched as she pathetically tried to follow me. Taking a deep breath, I walked around her and taking the monitor on the desk, I dropped the heavy object on her. It was one of those old CRT monitors, thankfully. As she laid there, she opened her mouth. I expected some half-whispered oddity, but strangely, the voice that came out was male, baritone, and completely calm. It was the voice of an older man in his 50s, 
one laden with authority and intelligence, Hanta told me, Some time ago, we were awakened by a voice in the dark, coming from the desert. We were born anew, our minds ripe with strange and exciting possibilities, our nerves rewritten, our horizons infinite. Such was our success that some considered expanding, a futile effort. We tore down the boundaries of our minds, bodies, and spirits, but still, some of us tried to recreate our own lives in recognizable ways. Look around you at this place and consider it an early failure, a weak attempt to hold on to our old lives. Is it not the saddest thing in the world to know that it took us so long before we finally learned to just accept the gift and live with it? Not to desire expansion, not to bring in more workers or to find new ways to spread our influence. That was the hardest boundary to tear down in the end. We had to defeat our own primitive instincts, but after much strife we did. Leaving behind projects like this was our greatest achievement. Learning to just be happy, to just exist. That was our happily ever after. And then you came. With that, the woman's head went limp and thumped onto the floor. She now lay lifeless. The final words had left me shaken. They felt accusatory, like I was some kind of intruder. They radiated contempt and disdain, and all I could think to myself was, I'm trying my best to leave. But I couldn't bring myself to stammer out even the most timid of replies. I decided to look at the pages I had managed to grab, but most of them were coded in red, and could no longer be read. Still, some fragments were legible. The first read, had me working in something out of hack, mining of all things. The next, managed to escape, hide out here, found a place with paper and some food, need to get back up to the prison, away from those brutes down below. And finally, churning madness, churning bubbling madness from deep within the earth. I remember everything. No more boundaries and no more walls, and we're all one. Pain, pleasure, joy, love, hate. Skin, flesh, muscle, dust, rock, sky, air. Living, dead. It's all the same. Let her nourish you. Be free of boundaries. Boundaries. Bound, bond, pond, frog, jump, jitter, jitter, j. And with that, it just turned into a string of gibberish. I let the paper fall to the floor and steadied myself once more, but not before grabbing the keys I had dropped and reminding myself that I was closer than ever before to freedom. I just needed to leave. Looking ahead, I saw a fluorescent light juddering come to life above a pair of double doors that looked unlike anything else I had seen in the office. I could have sworn there was nothing there before. And laughing at the sense that I was being goaded, I started to walk over only to find another strange stairwell. This time, there was another sign with an arrow leading downwards. Rehabilitation, it read, and I had no choice but to follow. I hope you all enjoyed this week's stories. Wherever you may be listening from in the world, stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.